Just let me know when you're good to go, Commissioner Sellers. I'm good to go. Okay. All right. Bring this meeting to order. Everyone, uh, good evening and welcome to the Tuesday, January 16th, 2024 Lawrence City Commission meeting. And to go ahead and get us started off, I'll have uh, Sherry go ahead and read the... Thank you, Mayor, and good evening, everyone. To minimize distractions during the meeting, please silence your cell phones. For those attending virtually, please ensure you are muted and your video is off when you are not actively participating in the meeting. The city reserves the right to turn videos off or mute virtual participants. The meeting is being recorded and broadcast on the city's YouTube channel and cable channel 25. When the mayor calls for public comment, please approach the podium to indicate you wish to speak. Those participating virtually should use the raise hand function to indicate they wish to speak. Please leave your virtual hand raised until you are called on. If you have any trouble, you can send a chat and all chats go directly to the meeting host. Please state your name before speaking and all comments will be limited to three minutes. Thank you, Mayor. Thank you, Sherry. All right, I'll go ahead and get us started off. Um, first item is approve the agenda. Uh, the City Commission reserves the right to amend, supplement, or reorder the agenda during the meeting. I would entertain a motion. Move to approve the agenda. I second that motion. I have a first and a second. All those in favor, please say aye. 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 Five zero. none opposed. All right, moving on to item B. Public comments. The public is allowed to speak on issues or items that are not scheduled for discussion on the agenda. Comments should be limited to issues and items germane to the business of the governing body. The commission will not discuss or debate these items, nor will the commission make decisions on items presented during this time. Members of the public will be limited to three minutes for comments. Any public comment in-house? from Lawrence, Kansas. Um, <clears throat> first off, I'd just like to say that uh, I, I read about the, the Pallet Village being a, a high barrier uh, facility, um, which um, I, that, that's great that that place is, is um, I feel, um, that they don't allow alcohol and drugs um, to be allowed there. I, I think that's awesome. Uh, I don't think low barrier uh, shelters uh, have a place really, in my opinion. Um, however, I would like to know uh, how are they going to enforce uh, that no alcohol, no drugs? Um, are there going to be uh, rules and policies uh, set up uh, to enforce that? and? Are bad choices going to be, you know, are, are the clients going to have to uh, have some type of, of, of consequence uh, to that? And also, um, moving moving forward, um, um, LCS obviously everybody knows they're going to be running that place out there. Um, one of LCS's um, programs that they 
uh, have out there is trauma-informed care. And uh, I'm just going to read four things. It says, realize the widespread impact of trauma and understanding paths for recovery. Recognize the signs of recognize the signs and symptoms of trauma patients, families, and staff. And integrate knowledge about trauma into policies, procedures, and practices. And actively avoid re-traumatizing. So I, probably about two months ago, I went out there and grabbed some uh, the rules and policies out there. And so in, in one of their policies it's, or rules, it says this clients, the clients can surrender all illegal paraphernalia and substances to staff, then it is returned to them at 7 a.m. So my question is, how are they handling that since they don't have to leave? You know, they're there all day. So how are they handling that? And furthermore, it says, this is all I believe rule and policies is illegal and is a sense distributing drugs. Excuse me, Mr. Mastin, uh, I believe that's time. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Hello, David Baston. Uh, I had a question here, and it's actually um, regarding something I seen today on um, on somebody's campaign funds that they were using. Uh, it showed here that uh, Mike Deaver got a reimbursement of two thousand three hundred and sixty-nine dollars for uh, National Builders Monthly. And I didn't know if, uh, I just wanted everybody to know that uh, some of their donations that they donated to him were going for, uh, to this National Builders Monthly. And I wanted to know if, uh, if there was anything to say about that. Uh, appreciate it. Mike, I think that's a fair question. Um, the I want to address something that was just set up here because we're talking about the LCS policies and rules. I was going to talk about something else, but I can't let this misinformation slide through in this room again because it's happened here in the last few weeks where somebody's come in here and talked this shit about how LCS is promoting drug use. <sighs> the reality of what happens. And trauma-informed care says that we don't, we're, we're not the police. We're trying to provide these people some motivation and some help and some opportunity to get somewhere and do something different. That What that means is that when they go in, they have a private container that they're able to put their private belongings in. Staff doesn't know what's in there. So the idea that staff out there is willingly just, here's your drugs, we're gonna give them back to you in the morning, that is just a load of bullshit, and I don't wanna hear it in this room again, because it's a lie. That's not what happens. It's just as if you went to this gym and put your own meth in your locker, did your workout or whatever you're doing, and then took your meth and left. It's the same thing. They have the same Fourth Amendment right you do, and the next time somebody comes up here and says that, I'm going to lose my cool a little bit more. I came in here tonight to give you some words from a homeless gentleman. 
who told me it's Burt Nash, fail. That confirmation, I'm sorry, I'm getting a little, that one really irritated me because that's the misinformation that's come in here twice now. But Burt Nash, hot team, when they go out, I talked to a gentleman today that told me that he was released from their care because he wouldn't accept the other services. He didn't want to be under drugging whatever, Adderall or whatever they're going to give him or whatever. He didn't want to do that part of it. So the hot team just said, well, if you're not going to do that, we can't help you. This is along the lines of what I've told you people when I come in here and say that the hot team is expected to run case management. Because when they're expecting people to get into the full program, that is a case management model. That is not a hot team. I want to congratulate the city and Misty for, for coming around this week. I'm happy to not be in here tonight talking about somebody dying this week. And that didn't happen as a sole responsibility of the city and Burt Nash really had very little to do with it. It was people on the ground doing the work. Not just advocates, but the EMC, First United Methodist, Pastor Phil was out there. You got people from out of town coming in. Our former homeless programs director was here helping, the one that you all treated like shit, but she was here saving people's lives. We need you all to listen. Any additional public comment? All right, Sherry, can you check on Zoom? There's none on Zoom, Mayor. Okay, I will go ahead and bring this back. Um, moving on to item C, consent agenda. Items on the consent agenda are considered under one motion and approved by one motion. Members of the governing body may remove items for separate discussion if desired. Members of the public may remove items identified as quasi-judicial for separate discussion if desired. Members of the public will be limited to three minutes for comments. Would any of the commission like to remove? I'd like to remove CHC. C-8-C. It's the tens to homeowners. Okay. Any other additional items? No, sir. Commissioner, okay. Not seeing any, I would entertain a motion to approve the consent, agi consent agenda um, absent C8C. I move to approve the consent agenda with the exception of C8C. I'll second that motion. I have a first and a second. All those in favor, please say aye. 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 That's five zero and none opposed. Passes. All right. Bringing us uh, to item D, items removed for separate vote, CHC. Commissioner Finkeldye? Um, yeah, I pulled CHC because a member of the public said he had a few questions, and hopefully maybe Leo or someone can answer those. Um, David Pastian said he had a few questions. Uh, yeah, I, I um, had a few questions with this. I know, uh, I think this land was originally donated to the city uh, for uh, low-income housing. At, um, not real versed on this at all so uh but uh then the city gave it to tenants for tenants to homeowners and now they're wanting to give it to another um bethel estates maybe uh i don't know a management company or contractor i don't know the details because i didn't have time to look it up but um 
I just don't know. I, I don't know. If, was there a process that was gone through to figure out um, who this land would be going to, uh, like this Bethel Estates? Was anybody else uh, in there for? Um, sorry. Um, was anybody else considered uh, besides these people? Um, and I don't know. I know uh, we just bought the land over. Well, we gave tenants to homeowners one point whatever three or one point eight million dollars to buy the land at Holcomb. Is the same thing going to happen with that land? And they're going to give it to somebody else or work something out? Uh, I'm just kind of kind of at a loss with that on on how all that worked at, how all that works. Uh, appreciate your time. Thank you. Hi. Go ahead. I could probably try to explain it, but I think either Leo or oh, it looks like Rebecca's on board, too. I don't know whether two can give a quick explanation of that. Sure. Uh, this is Leah Roslin, Affordable Housing Administrator. The land had been held by the city and then was donated to tenants to homeowners for the purpose of developing affordable housing, rental and homeownership. Um, and I am going to turn it over to Rebecca Buford, Executive Director of Tenants to Homeowners, to sort of explain the process. So we're not we're not changing that uh, process, except that it says we cannot. Um, you know, not be the sole owner. And to do a low-income housing tax credit project, the land has to be owned by the tax credit LLC, which we are a member of. So it's just, it's partly the way that tax credit, low-income or affordable housing tax credit projects are funded by the IRS and syndicators that a, a for-profit has to own them for the syndicators to get the tax write-off for the investors to want to be involved at all in giving money to tenants to homeowners to build affordable housing. So we have to be a part of a for-profit LLC, which we are a partner in. So tenants to homeowners is still going to be involved in the whole process in the development of these units. But legally, the LLC has to own the land to build those units on top of it. Um, and so again, and Brad, feel free to jump in if you yeah. think you can explain the low-income housing tax credit tax structure better than than I. But again, I think I totally understand. Like, why is tenants to homeowners out of the deal? We're not. We're still a partner. We just are not the only partnership. And I need low-income housing tax credits to be able to build 121 units. There is no way I can do it by myself. This is a $23 million project. And if we want to do it in Lawrence, we need to have these partnerships. Um, and again, low-income housing tax credits require that this for-profit entity still rents at below market rents to a targeted income of low-income people. 
So again, this is more of the for-profit entity is more just about the way that they convince syndicators and people that need tax rebates or tax credits to put money into an affordable housing project. And that is part of the tricks of the trade and the tools we can use to best create units. But they will be they will not be making money. There is still a low income housing tax credit project that will will not really cash flow um, in any way. In fact, the tax investors that pay for these to be built don't want it to cash flow because they get better tax incentives when it doesn't. So again, some of these are just mechanisms for um, financing affordable housing that is complex, but it's still, in all intents and purposes, is not for profit, is not a for profit. We're not giving it to someone to, you know, why did the city donate it? And then it's being given to someone who's not involved in affordable housing. That's just not the case. And the only thing I would add, because no one wants to hear me talk about tax credits, but I would say just back up one second. I mean, tenants or homeowners had acquired a large piece of land, and the city had a small piece of land next to it. We, that's the land we're talking about. We had donated it to tenants or homeowners to make it part of a larger project. They, um, they started the process to find a developer, and they went through a process to find a developer to build these 120 units. Once they found that entity who was willing to build it, then they said, okay, now we have to use this tax mechanism. But our requirement when we donated the land was technical. You know, the city was protecting us not so they couldn't give it away. That's why we have to approve to allow it to be part of this larger development. So, thank you. <laughs> um, all right. Uh, any further questions? Yeah. Uh, you, you'll have to save. <clears throat> you'll have to save it for public comment. I'm asking the uh, commission for any further questions. Just for the record, Rebecca, if you're still on, because of the public-private partnership with this, does that does this change the mechanism of which units? are permanently affordable or are only affordable for a certain amount of time? What we are trying to do is we have first right of refusal if the um, entity ever wants to sell to the market and tenant and that price will subtract the value of the land that we can buy it for. So we're not paying that twice ever and we are we have documents in the process with our for-profit development partners on how if they choose to sell it that we will be able to um, make the first right of the offer and get that so that we can keep it permanent and remember we're a partner in this so we're involved for the next forever you know till I die I'll be here. Um, so again, this is a long-term commitment by tenants to homeowners as a partner in this tax credit project. The issue is we can't come up with the millions of dollars of leverage and subsidy without using tax credit financing. Correct. Lots of braiding and blending of, of dollars. <clears throat> okay. 
All right. Uh, any additional questions from the commissioners? Okay. Not seeing none. I will open it up to public comment. Uh, I had a question before. Uh, what was the process as in, in choosing that particular uh, person that you're partnering with? Um, was there a process or, I mean, was it open to other people, like maybe somebody from Lawrence? Um, which obviously, th th these guys are from Olathe, so, um, yep, thank you. I just want to thank Brad for clarifying that for the public because we do matter. I'm not seeing any additional public comment in house. Um, Sherry, any on Zoom? No, Mayor. All right, I'll bring it back to us. Um, I believe Mr. Baston asked that additional question. Uh, Kidding. Rebecca, could you speak to that in terms of uh, how the company was chosen, I believe was the sense of the question? Mm -hmm. Sure. As a not-for-profit doing community work, uh, part of our decision-making is who have we worked well with, who has delivered a good product, who has not let uh, making money, you know, cut, be an issue in rather than building a good quality product for affordable housing. And we have partnered with Wheatland on three or four other projects and they do what they say they're going to do and they're good. They have good crews and good contractors and they know how to use low income housing tax credits. There are not a lot of people that know how to do that in Lawrence. So we're talking about a handful, two or three options. And I've worked with several of those options and uh, Wheatland has been the most uh, honest and straightforward and done what they say they're going to do. Remember, we're still a partner in the project. So it is my job as the nonprofit partner to make sure they do that and no one, you know, gets taken advantage of by a developer. But remember, this is an affordable development um, and they are experts in using that kind of financing and they've only done affordable units. So I would argue this is a niche that we can't always be 100% local, but they've done three other projects here in Lawrence and they have a large presence here um, and, and are a very good, good contractors to work with. So I think just like anyone as, as a leader and a, someone the city trusts to donate land to do a development, we have the right to choose good partners based on our experience with them, just like any other developer would. All right. That's a good, good answer. Any uh, further discussion up here or Commissioner Larson? Okay. Yeah. Alrighty. Good questions. I, I'm, I'm close excited about the project, I think. As Rebecca said, the only way we're going to come close to reaching our goals in affordable housing is to have private mm -hmm. for-profit partners. We can't do it all ourselves, and so this 121 units is going to be a big step in that direction. So appreciate the question, but um, nothing else. I'd move to yep. I move to approve to answer homeowners' request to transfer 4.64 acre parcel of property at Bob Billings Parkway in the South Lawrence Trafficway to Florette Hill LLC Affordable Housing Development. 
Is there a second out there? I'll second that. Second it. Okay. First and a second. All those in favor, please say aye. 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 All right. Aye. None opposed. Looks like it passed five zero. All right. Thank you all. And uh, moving us on to item E. Work session. The work session provides an opportunity for the city commission to discuss items in greater detail. The commission take, will take no binding action on items presented during this time. Work, work session topics are eligible for public comments. Members of the public will be limited to three minutes for comments. All right. Hello, Becky. Thank you. Good evening, commissioners, mayor. My name is Becky Pepper. I'm the planning manager at the Planning and Devel Development Services Department here with the city. Um, and as you're probably all aware, the city is in the process of updating our land development code, which was last adopted in 2006. Um, the land development code is a set of zoning regulations and um, land use regulations that really help guide how development um, occurs within our, our community. And it's also the tool that helps us implement our um, comprehensive plan and our strategic plan. Um, we started the update to the Land Development Code back in June of 2022, and since that time, we have been um, working with the consultant of Clarion Associates. Um, they've helped us with various um, public community uh, opportunities, um, and then we've also been working with our Land Development Code Update Steering Committee, um, who have been reviewing some of the uh, draft modules that uh, staff and Clarion have been working on. Um, so tonight we do have Elizabeth Gar Garvin here via Zoom, and she's going to uh, she's with Clarion Associates, and she's going to be providing you all with an update on the project and the process that we've undertaken. Um, so without further ado, I'm going to pass this on to her for her presentation. But just wanted you to know that I am uh, available. Elizabeth and I are here for any questions that you might have afterwards. Thank you. Thanks, Becky. Everyone, hear me okay? Yes. Yes, thank you, Mr. Mayor and Commission members. We have um, a presentation providing an update on the work we've been doing on the Land Development Code. The presentation itself actually has more content than I'm going to cover this evening. We wanted to um, give you a little more background if you wanted to read it, but we will be spending um, more time with you as this year goes on because 2024 is going to be the adoption year with any luck, fingers crossed. So um, we'll go through the presentation and then um, you can direct us uh, as to where you want to go. We um, started this project, as Becky said, a year ago, June, um, and we have four basic project goals, um, identifying opportunities um, to meet and implement uh, Plan 2040, um, creating more predictable development outcomes, simplifying and streamlining development procedures, and making the land development code more user-friendly. I do have a few um, points of recognition written into the presentation tonight because um, we wanted to just spend a minute letting the commission know um, that we have so many participants in this process and we're really grateful for them. Um, so just to let you know, as Becky pointed out, we seek feedback from across the community. We seek a lot of feedback from our steering committee and um, we are chaired very ably by Commissioner Finkeldye. And so he's been our point person um, to bring in information and to keep things going. And we'll give shout outs to a few other groups as we go through this. So here's our project calendar. Elizabeth, you can see, yeah. We, we want to share your mm. screen. We're not seeing it if you, 
Why, yes, I was. Let me try again. Just check them. No, you do not need to look at me talking through this whole thing. Thank you. Good pickup, Commissioner Finkelday. How are we doing? There we go. Awesome. Yeah. Okay, here's the project calendar. So we are um, in task three, and um, that will go on just for a few months, first quarter um, of this year. We have um, drafted everything on our bullet points um, through here. We are um, finishing up the first round of review on the development standards. We'll be doing some more work on that and starting in um, this year on administration and procedures. As we move forward into um, March and then late spring, early summer, we'll be working from a full draft, everything um, together for more community feedback. So one of the things um, that we've got going on in the Lawrence LDC is in addition to working in the very detailed um, segments of the code, there are also three topics that come from Plan 2040 that are really cross-cutting. And we, as we make the changes to the code, not only do we check um, that we're implementing the technical aspects of the plan, we also check that we are in alignment with these key topics. They are broad concepts um, that the city supports in one way or another. Um, our first key topic is affordable housing. And um, we, we are working with Leah and Rebecca and Ahab and grateful um, for the detailed input we get from them um, to make sure that this is a code that allows the city to achieve outcomes um, in terms of construction of lowercase affordable housing. So it's not technically affordable, like Rebecca was talking about a minute ago. It doesn't have um, the tax credits, but it is something um, that a household could live in without spending more than 30% of their income to live there. We are also looking at the code uh, for opportunities to use the land use regulations um, in a flexible manner to help accommodate more capital A, technically affordable, long-term affordable housing. Um, so we're in both categories of people who uh, want to and need to live here should be able to find housing that's acceptable. So some of the things that we've done to, to move to affordable housing, you can see from the list here, um, essentially um, are to get flexible within the regulations to encourage infill and redevelopment and to look at ways um, to increase our ability to put um, units in smaller spaces. It could be smaller units, could be smaller lots, um, could be just changing up the configuration. Talk about this in a little more detail um, in a future slide. So our second um, cross-cutting category is equity. So we're working with the Lawrence Equity and Inclusion Department. And what are we doing with equity? Equity is a big umbrella idea. So equity, particularly within zoning, um, means that we're taking clear steps. Whoops. Okay, we don't need that. Um, taking clear steps to avoid or undo unfair outcomes. And so it's unfair in terms of uh, people's ability to participate in or influence parts of the zoning process. Um, so who's not here and who's making decisions and who do those outcomes impact? These are all discussions we're having as we move the code drafting forward. We, um, we are looking to get more feedback in this particular category. And we find that's a little easier to do once we have the whole code together. So we'll keep asking people um, if we're going in the right direction and what are the outcomes we should be looking for. 
So finally, our third cross-cutting category is sustainability. We're working with the sustainability office on this and we're in conversation with um, the group working on the Douglas County Climate Action and Adaptation Plan. Sustainability um, plays out in lots of ways, big and small. How are we sustainable in our development patterns? How are we sustainable um, in our traffic and our vehicle use? Um, and how are we providing um, opportunities for the community to live in ways um, that are meaningful and don't have huge negative impacts on the land around us. So you can see um, we've been looking at some basic sustainability requirements, such as um, allowing people in rental units to do a little gardening on-site food production. Um, we have been in conversations with um, MSO about stormwater management, about bringing some new regulations online. With that, we have kind of a theme of water running through the project. So how are we using water? How are we managing water? And how are we thinking about water in the future? So all of these aspects are written into the code. Um, they do sometimes live in a little bit of tension with each other, and that's one of the other conversations we're having. Do we want something to be housing or do we want something to be green space? Kind of encapsulates that conversation. So a brief summary of our updates. We're looking at, um, first off, in the, in the first round of drafting, um, the zoning districts, uses, and site standards. So we're thinking about what types and where are structures and uses allowed in Lawrence. So this is kind of the real nuts and bolts of the code. What goes where and, um, and how do we get it there? And then there's a layer in Lawrence of how should new development, infill development, and redevelopment be incorporated. So long, long time ago when Lawrence was new and we had the original plat, new development, super simple, put a house in, put a road down, probably get a horse and cart. We've moved on. We are different people in a different place and we're looking at more complex development patterns. And the code is um, the place where we anticipate the problems um, and the challenges that you run into doing that kind of development and we try to help uh, resolve it or to build a path or process for resolution. So just some high level changes here. We've been looking across all of the city's existing zoning districts to figure out what we should update and what we should change. Uh, we take our guidance for that from plan 2040 and best practices. Um, and then we also look for feedback from the community. Uh, one of the interesting conversations um, that we had uh, late last year was with a group of representatives from Lawrence's development community. And these are voices that we um, actively invite into the project because we want to understand um, whether the changes that we're looking at going forward are changes um, that will get the community where it wants to go in terms of the plan and how we make sure that at some level they pencil out um, so the development community can find a way to start building the things the city wants to see. Other, oops, other changes in here, we've been looking at the lot standards, um, adding a range of housing options, um, and a change um, that could be of significance, introducing minimum density requirements. So in Lawrence, you have a maximum, um, but not a minimum, or you have a maximum lot size, um, you have a minimum lot size, but not a maximum lot size. So we try to take the box, that's your lot, and say, we've decided in plan 2040 that when you're doing development in this pattern, it needs to meet this density. This is going to help the city provide some more housing um, or uh, provide opportunities for the redevelopment that we want to see in terms of mixed use development. 
So that is one of the changes that we've been flagging as we talk to different people in different places to get feedback. You'll see on this slide, there were some follow-up questions. We addressed these questions with the Planning Commission right before the holiday break, and we do have um, some of their answers and concerns at the end of the PowerPoint if you wanted to see what's going on um, and what kind of feedback we're getting. So in addition to the zoning districts, we've added kind of a menu of options, um, which will be appropriate in different places to uh, get to different development patterns. So we took a look at what the city was allowing in terms of cluster development in the, um, in the subdivision standards, and we're kind of moving that over and seeing if we can use it more broadly. We know that there are um, a lot of communities that are looking at a courtyard development or a residential commons development, which has very small lots, um, but could still have um, that single family detached housing product that a lot of people like. Um, so we put these options into a different section of the code, but they work with the residential development standards. Some other options that we've been talking about are a voluntary um, local employee residence unit program. So um, that would be sort of workforce housing within Lawrence or affordable and or affordable. They're not necessarily the same thing. Um, workforce housing tends to be um, a local employee preference um, and affordable housing fits into our affordable housing definition. And so um, we're asking what would it look like to make this voluntary and could we get anyone to opt into it? We have options uh, for small lot development. And then finally, um, have taken the concept that the city has already experimented with of two detached dwellings on a single lot and made it into a development pattern. Um, this could happen um, in a variety of older neighborhoods in Lawrence. Um, could be something that you might want to do in a newer neighborhood. You might not go at it this way, but it could be a model going forward of saying, hey, we have some space um, and we could look at putting some additional housing here. So finally, we think about in terms of residential development and mixed-use development, how do all these things fit together? And so we have pulled forward content from the community design manual and updated some of the residential design standards. So we do think about if you're putting a new house in, if you're putting a mixed-use development in, what is the fit in the context of an existing neighborhood? And what does it look like if we're doing a newer neighborhood type of development? So um, within these standards, really you've probably seen a lot of this in the community design manual. Some of the residential stuff might be a little new. Where do we put off-street parking? How do we get to a mix of dwelling types? Um, how do taller buildings relate to shorter buildings? And then um, similarly across mixed-use, mixed which is residential plus something else, usually commercial, or non-residential, we think about how do we do design um, in keeping with Lawrence. And if we're seeing new development or redevelopment, you know, what amenities belong on the site, where should the entryways be, are we regulating color and materials, and what do our, what do our parking structures look like? So we, we come back around and I'm kind of jumping through the code. So if you perhaps sit down to read it, it will come in a different order, but I'm showing you how the pieces come together here. So we also have zoning districts um, that get us to more mixed use and commercial development, more mixed use development and still commercial development. One of the consistent comments that we've heard across this process from our steering committee and from other groups is why don't we have more mixed use in Lawrence? 
Why don't we have more housing where we have retail, where we have employment? Why aren't we bringing these things together? Um, as just a side note, as, as we started drafting at Clarion, we kind of had clear delineation and steering committee said, why aren't we allowing mixed use just about everywhere? Um, so this is a theme, we've heard it from the public, um, and so you'll see um, in the code that there are many, many more opportunities to mix uses in a structure or in a district. We have um, kept the industrial districts. We are working to revise the industrial business park district for a new iteration um, to allow the creation of smaller lots. We're also thinking about industrial uses, some light industrial uses, which in the past we've segregated, we've said, you go over there because you have the word industrial, um, really are great neighbors. And so we're thinking about can we do some of these things downtown? Have we, in classifying uses, created problems that we don't want to? So those are some conversations that we're having. We have some special purpose districts and um, not a lot of change here. The one big change is that um, civic and institutional uses, such as a hospital or a church, will be allowed to put residential development on their site if they have room for it. We have recommended some changes to the plan development section. Um, saying that if you're gonna do plan development in Lawrence, we want you to hit one of our big goals. Um, we, um, we stumbled into the word amenities. We understand that um, there's still a little conversation going on about this, so let's back us up to goals. If you're gonna do a plan development in Lawrence, should be either sustainable, should be include historic um, sites or structures, it should include affordable housing, or it should be a well-planned master plan development. And those are all defined within the draft. So someone can't come in and say, ooh, I'm super sustainable because you can put EV parking in your garage. That's not gonna get you there. You have to do a little bit more than that. Um, so we've updated the use table. Um, big change here, just for me to note for you guys, um, I used to have a boss who was also an elected official and he said what I really hate is getting stopped in a grocery store and people asking me stuff I've never heard of before. So to let you know some of the big things, we have recommended in this draft um, allowing up to, allowing, not requiring, up to four units in single family zoning. So doesn't change what anybody has on the ground. Doesn't make you bulldoze your house, put four units in. But it does move us away from um, dispersing land into more spread out, single family development, if somebody wants to do a development that is more dense than that. This should be a good conversation. This should be something we talk about in the community. And so we wanna make sure we flag it for you. If you guys wanna do any individual chats and get back to us, feel free. Okay, moving on. Um, we made some changes within the code, taking out some odd use limitations that were based on floor space. We want space to turn over. Our mantra is the structure stay, the uses change. And so we wanna get there with that. We have a whole slew of development standards. That's what we've been working on. Um, these are general standards that apply to all development and they should be tailored for different locations and different types of development. So development standards in downtown Lawrence or some of the historic neighborhoods might be different than the development standards that you do out at Albemarle or even further out um, as development gets closer to the county. 
couple, uh, three sections that we haven't made a ton of change on. Um, we've just updated, rewritten as needed, the subdivision design and improvement standards, the landscaping and buffering standards, and the environmentally sensitive land standards. Um, they're pretty up to date. They work pretty well. We have made minor changes in there. Added a new section uh, called mobility and connectivity. This focuses on how people move around and that is uh, beyond automobile. So we are thinking about circulation for pedestrians, bicyclists, and automobiles. How do we keep everybody safe? That's our biggest quest in this section. And then how do we make sure those systems are connected so we can all get where we wanna go? You can see we are working from a lot of guidance from within Lawrence. Big change here um, within the parking section. We have come out with a recommendation endorsed by the steering committee that Lawrence shift from a minimum parking requirement on my lot where I am opening a target. I have to have one space per 100 uh, square feet of retail. That's how it works right now. Two, hey, target, you can only have 100 spaces. And um, you don't have to have 100 spaces, but you cannot go beyond 100 spaces. So this flips the conversation from uh, what's the minimum, and we usually end up with extra parking with that, and parking is an extremely expensive um, use of property. So we're hoping that this change allows applicants, allows developers to right-size their parking um, and provide more to the community in terms of, could be housing, could be retail, could be restaurants. Um, there's a lot of information in the market about parking needs and parking limitations, and so, we're switching the community around to looking at this in different ways. Um, if you're worried that you are gonna be out there alone, uh, something that we've talked about with our steering committee is that um, there are a number of communities uh, regionally and across the country that are um, looking at this change. Um, Fayetteville, Arkansas um, has a parking maximum and Austin, Texas is switching to a parking maximum and Bloomington, Indiana, those are the three on top of my head. When we come um, into further discussion about this, if you want more information, just let us know. So this is out for discussion. This is something we want to hear more about from the community. There are bicycle parking standards um, in the code and um, some preliminary EV parking standards. We're having some interesting discussions with the steering committee about um, whose obligation this is. Is this something that the city needs to require or is this something that we think the market is gonna provide? So right now it's drafted in the code, uh, but that will likely evolve over time. There are exterior lighting standards in the code, including new LED requirements. So as lighting changes, um, we wanna get there and then um, clarify how we do some regulations around lighting. So the takeaway from today, some of our biggest updates, um, more housing types are allowed in all residential districts. We have a range of smaller lot residential development types that have been added. More areas in the city will be zoned mixed use. Renewable energy systems, so not utility scale. This is just personal. It may perhaps end up being neighborhood. That's something that we're talking about. Um, are a, a by right use and an accessory use. So they're built in uh, to the code. We have the bike transportation connections and parking requirements updated. Um, we've eliminated the minimum parking and replaced it with a parking maximum. We've changed out the planned development uh, project specific amenities. And just hiding in there is um, that we've added a stream buffer requirement. 
So to fill you in on what we've been hearing, um, some of our discussion topics have been the size and scale of infill development and redevelopment. What does it look like? What does it feel like? Um, making sure that people have access to parks and open spaces. How will the stormwater management requirements play out? What will the stream buffer standards do? Um, more about infill redevelopment, housing and parking. Um, lots about parking, probably not surprising to any of you. We could be talking about um, saving places for frogs and we would have a parking discussion. So um, that's going to stick with this code and it's going to move its way forward. Um, we've been talking about the renewable energy facilities, um, balancing the provision of public infrastructure and the costs of public infrastructure. We've been talking about the potential for narrower street widths. Um, been thinking about, um, in, I think this in particular comes from Planning Commission, being clear about what's new in the code, what's optional and what's incentivized. How do we get to making it easy to build what the community and the city want to see? A lot of talk about affordable housing, all good, um, either questions or comments on that. Um, a request for some curb usage standards. So we're kind of moving into um, new trends in regulation. Um, that particular one came from um, someone not so psyched about delivery trucks stopped in the left lane on Tennessee Street um, and ride shares. The idea of scales of energy um, incentives for providing solar, technically usually a building code issue. We can do a little bit in the code, um, making sure it's easy to do a solar parking lot cover like you have at the Merck. A um, little bit about an electric bike and regular bike shared infrastructure and safety and then talking about the adoption process um, and providing more information to the community about affordable housing to support good decision making. We come around the corner to our next steps on this project. So we'll finish out drafting module three that'll have procedures, non-conformities, violations and enforcement, some general provisions and the last of the measurements and definitions, and then we'll move into the consolidated draft. Essentially, we pull the full draft together and um, we uh, create opportunities uh, for the community to share their thoughts with us, to do a big round of revisions um, before we go into the adoption process. We will be meeting with our steering committee monthly, um, starting in February. And we wanted to let you know that right now there's a survey on the website um, about some, um, I think, residential development design. If anyone wants to participate, it, you can go through the city's website and go to the LDC. So that was, that was it. And I thank you for your time and patience. I hope I got through that quickly enough for everyone. Okay. Thank you very much. All right, I'll, right. I'll open it up to questions from the commission. All right. Yeah. Are there any questions? I have a couple questions. Um, just um, going back to the slide on employee base housing. Mm -hmm. Let me make sure I get. Hang on, I'll pull that back up. Yeah, I might get to it before you. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> Seeing how my technology skills are going this evening, that wouldn't be surprising. You're okay. I opened up the agenda so I could uh, I could follow along with you. Um. So I know we've we've kind of talked about it in in different terms. So I want to make sure I'm understanding it correctly. So you're talking about employee housing as it relates to a particular. 
industry and not from a perspective of workforce housing, which speaks to housing that, that touches upon a certain area median income that may, that is identified in some of our more pressing, uh, more global. So, cause I, I guess I read this as employee residences may be targeted towards teachers, healthcare providers, or university employees where a workforce housing that kind of speaks to the same definition but is a little bit more global as it relates to folks maybe within those industries and identifying that they hit a certain AMI and targeting housing that fits within that AMI so that it's a little bit more broad and it's not so restrictive in that it's just one particular employee, employer, employer industry. So could you just kind of speak to that? Yeah, Commissioner Sellers, I appreciate you bringing out that question. So we wanted to put the idea out of, is this something the city wants to see? I think the next step is figuring out the logistics that you're thinking through. Mm -hmm. So is it workforce? Is it teachers and firefighters and librarians? And, um, you know, the, uh, this primary group that we want to make sure isn't, you know, moving off to cheaper areas because we want to keep them in Lawrence and keep them employed there. And so the, the next part of that is it could be either an and or an or, right? So it could be workforce and affordable, like capital A affordable. So we're setting it at an AMI and we're saying it gets set at that AMI and workforce gets the first bite at the apple. Um, or we could say we're giving a preference to this group of people. If there's nobody in that group that qualifies for this housing, we can have group be ready to go. But I, I think that what um, what we've committed to as your consultants is helping um, walk through that next part of this, not just put it in the code and say, good luck, um, but work uh, work with the housing um, groups and figure out what is, what is the need we can meet here? Um, how do we think this housing could be meaningful within the community? Um, I think actually we would also look back to city commission for some policy guidance on that. Um, so if there's any higher level conversation that you have had or want to have and provide us your input, we can feed that into how these regulations would work over time. Okay. And then the piece on infill development. Um, mm -hmm. I, uh, my question is, have you and any other municipalities that you've worked with discussions around not necessarily speaking to infill to say we encourage infill development, but rather municipalities that took the extra step to creating infill guidelines of so stating, you know, to a point we could create a expedited process or a special permit process for infill development products that infill development projects that feet that meet a specific criteria that was decided upon. Like, have you? Yes. Okay. Yes, we have. Um, Commissioner, we have um, we have done that. Um, we are we are under um, our housing problem in Colorado is a bit of a hotter, messier mess than Lawrence's, and so um, we are being actively encouraged by our state legislature to get to as many of those administrative approvals as possible with the threat being they're gonna step in and take over zoning authority. Mm. Um, so we have been on the administrative approval bandwagon for the last couple of years and um, have also looked at that in terms of 
what are these places that aren't getting infill? What's getting in the way? And how do we adjust the regulations appropriately so there's not one weird thing getting in the way of two houses going in on that lot? Um, so we we have built into the code places for just standard adjustments. So you know you can take 10% off the setback if that means you're going to be able to get a house on this lot, and it doesn't have to go to uh, planning commission or city commission. So we'll do those smaller changes. Um, um, and then we'll have, you know, standard, oh, infill lots, you know, get get these things wiped out. Like, you don't have to have the same side yard setback if you're going to build here. So we're, we're looking at that in all of the sides of the box that is development to move as many of those to fast approval, just like you're contemplating. Okay. In the legislative piece, I, I don't think we're too far behind you. <laughs> we may have actually had a bill introduced today to do that exact thing that you're talking about. I am, I am sorry to hear that because it's no fun for anybody. Yeah. Mayor, that's all I have for tonight, or for now. Okay, uh, Commissioner Larson, please raise your hand up. I just have a really quick question on the first slide you put up about what is affordable housing. On the lowercase a, you indicated they spend more than 30% of their income to live there. It, are you referring to just the actual mortgage payment or the rent payment, or is, is that is that definition entails something else? Um, it's the 30% is the mortgage plus the mortgage insurance. Um, it's, okay. it's just the cost of the unit or the rent. Okay, thank you. That was it. Mm -hmm. I, I, I um, would love to just comment on what I'm hearing. It's really tremendous step forward. Uh, lots of progressive communities are moving this in, in this direction, and I'm really excited to hear about some of the initiatives for trying to encourage uh, the support of local employees or just people who were trying to, you know, keep in our community instead of having to travel elsewhere to have affordable homes. And um, I'd like to hear more about the. Uh, the stream buffer requirements. That's something I, I hadn't really looked looked into, but um, it was nebulous, but I, I think I understand what where they're going to, but um, that's one thing I'd like to hear more mm -hmm. about in the future. Um, and then uh, I love the parking maximums. I mean, this is the thing we, that's, uh, again, uh, communities are, you know, understanding that uh, without um, vehicles in the equation, housing can be, you know, tremendously uh, lower cost, and you know the average cost of a parking space is between sixty and eighty thousand dollars sometimes. And you know, when you can take that out of the equation, it can really uh, make things more affordable. So it's exciting to me, and I'm glad to see this coming. So okay, well, it's. Uh, I think we're still in questions, but yeah, I, that is noted. Your comments. Elizabeth, you might say something about the, the stream buffer. Sure, I'd be happy to. So I um, believe we built in a fairly basic stream buffer. Um, the goal of stream buffering is to um, limit disruptive development that is on it's on a stream side that would you know um, force dirt or debris or other wash in into the streams. Um, it, I can't remember off the top of my head, and I apologize. It is uh, probably a 100-foot buffer, but um, we may have shrunk that a little bit. That's a standard buffer size. It usually would 
um, come in in the subdivision process. Um, we, we don't want to get into a place where we're putting a stream buffer in and we're causing uh, problems for development that's already there. So usually we come up with a workaround if you're already in place and you're on a site that would be affected by a stream buffer. Um, we either shrink the buffer or we say you're non-conforming, but please don't, you know, put the kids extra bedrooms in that space, it's dangerous. Um, so we, we try to think forward and then try to think back about what's already on the ground. Within the buffer, it's just, you know, enjoy a picnic area. Um, maybe as the buffer gets a little further from the water, you could put like a raised deck in there or something. But on the whole, it's, it's um, for safety and stream conservation purposes and not a lot more than that. Does that get to what you were wondering, or do we yes, want to yes, make sure that, that we have staff reach out for a side conversation? Yeah, I was just more curious about the scope of the buffer. And then um, to my question, and I was talking to, but the, the question I've seen others, communities using um, other ways to incentivize um, development of um, lower or, or local employee housing. And I was just curious about um, whether or not this is something that you've seen that was productive in other places and whether or not um, Lawrence seems like a place where it could be useful. Yeah, that's a, that's a good question and a big question, Commissioner. Um, so we've seen it work in other places. It, it's, we gave it a very ungainly name, but it's essentially uh, a density bonus for affordable housing. And so when you get into the draft, you see that um, there's a lot of discretion for the city um, to move standards around, to increase the amount of housing that's available on the site. Um, the goal being that um, if there's someone that wants to do voluntary um, affordable housing in a project, with market rate housing that they could offset the cost of providing that housing. Um, so we, you know, we obviously didn't go, it is voluntary inclusionary zoning, um, but the voluntary is the big trick here. So um, it is one, it is one means that we have seen. It is not going to provide a lot of housing in a voluntary status. Um, so the other things that we've used to try to get there are the shrinking lot size, are the allowing more units per lot. Um, we've tried to stretch the regulations in as many ways possible to um, make housing development easier um, with the goal of getting more housing on the market and then creating the tools um, that maybe Leah or Rebecca could use um, to get more going on a site that would have um, permanent affordable units on it. Mm -hmm. okay. So density bonus was what I was looking for. Thank you. Appreciate it. Yes. Mm -hmm. So to, to that regard, um, and along that line, thank you for bringing that up, Vice mm -hmm. Mayor. Um, that's typically working with, uh, you know, a nonprofit or, you know, a, mm -hmm. Uh, okay, it's so that uh, they can main, be affordable for in perpetuity and uh, so that uh, yeah. people can have an opportunity to go ahead and use that housing over and over again, okay, as opposed to being locked up and then turned into, you know, whatever. Go back to market rate. And I think to Commissioner Seller's question, we want to figure out if we want to lock it all down or if we want to say someone who is a you know, is an employee in a category that we're, we need to keep in Lawrence, gets first dibs, and then that house can go back on the market at full price. It's kind of a lost opportunity, but sometimes as you're rolling into a housing program, you might want to start slow. Right. So. Okay. Um, Elizabeth, you probably know we have historic resources. Um, 
on the agenda after you, and I'll ask this question of Lynn here in a little bit, but, um, or Jeff, but one, can you talk about kind of what we're thinking with kind of context-based infill development? And two, how do you see, uh, as we get walk through the procedures in, in the coming months, how that interacts with the HRC procedures? Yeah, thank you for asking that. We've been kind of keeping an eye on that um, set of regulations update and have um, looked through it and have been just trying to not sort of jump the gun on it. We know it needs to relate back to what's going on within the land development code. Um, the comments that we've received are um, along the lines of um, we want to make sure um, that the historic resources are properly taken care of. And sometimes there could be opportunities for development that just don't take place because of the way the code, the historic resources code is written and applied. So um, with, with this next set of drafting and knowing you guys are going through this tonight, um, we're probably gonna back up in time a little bit. We'll draft our procedures, but we also wanna see if we can find um, ways to do context sensitive development that doesn't take away from what is historic warrants, but maybe there are um, nooks and crannies or opportunities um, where we could see more development that is in keeping with the historic resources that is currently not being allowed right now. And I don't want to step on anybody's toes. I know that people that are passionate about historic resources um, don't want to see, you know, big change to them in a way that's detrimental. Um, and I know that we're looking at change that the community wants to see. So um, I would ask that um, we kind of put a marker on this one and come back to it after our team has had a chance to get in um, and talk to also um, people from the community in Lawrence who have volunteered to be part of that conversation. I have a handful of um, business cards and phone numbers of people who work with both codes, um, particularly architects, and we'd like to get deeper into that conversation. Thank you. Okay. Any uh, further questions? Not seeing any. All right. Uh, you can open it up to public comment. Not seeing any public comment here. Um, Sherry, any on Zoom? Nope. Okay, I'll bring us back. Any uh, final discussion or comments? Yes, sir. Thank you. I would. I would just say, um, obviously, Elizabeth. Thank you and. Yep. I mean, I think we're having a good process here, and I think we're getting lots of good feedback, and, and Elizabeth's doing a good job of getting feedback. Um, you know, there's a lot of big changes we're proposing here, and um, as sometimes happens, I'm sure we'll get to the end of this, and we'll, this will show up on an agenda, and someone will say, well, no one asked me about that. <laughs> so I do encourage all of us and everyone watching, but you know, all of us as we're talking to folks, you know, um, and they're asking what's going on, you know, start talking about infill and start talking about bulky minimums and, 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 and spread the word on that so that we can get that input, um, you know, um, so that when we're down to the end of this, because Elizabeth jokingly said we're going to get it done in 2024, but we're going to get it done mid-2024 so uh, yeah. we can get going on this. Um, and so I just hope we – I don't want to get to a point where we get to the end of the process and all of a sudden people say, I haven't had time – 
delay this for a month so we can talk about it. Delay this for a month so we can talk about it. Let's try to get that conversation going. And Elizabeth's team's working hard on that, Jeff, and Becky and her, their team are working hard on it. But if we can join that, that conversation, that'd be helpful. Agree. I'd like to jump in and um, first of all, thank Commissioner Finkeldive for heading this, heading this up and uh, being the chairperson of this uh, steering committee. I know it's a long process, but uh, it's uh, been uh, happily impressed with uh, where it's going and where it's where it will be. Um, I was particularly interested and happy to see uh, the emphasis on cluster development and uh, and uh, you know that kind of combined development mixed use, uh, making it a little bit more easy, a little bit more streamlined and uh, providing avenues for um, you know more inclusive uh, industrial and commercial as well. So um, yeah, it's a it's a, it's it's a lot of change. And uh, hopefully we'll be able to go ahead and get the word out and let people know and uh, how they can go ahead and participate in the process. And uh, I think this will benefit us all. Thank you. And thank you, Elizabeth, for all your hard work as well. Thanks, everyone, for the great questions. Have a fun evening. Oh, oh, oh. hold on. <laughs> no, you have to save the best for last. Um, Elizabeth, echoes, dittos, thank you for the presentation. Um, I did appreciate... Um, the conversation around, either, you know, employee or moderate. I, I look forward to this coming back in front of the commission. Us having a, a, a very deep conversation about that, um, especially about infill guidelines. You know, I do believe we we need to put a wrangle on what we hope to accomplish with infill and what we think infill development should be what should be the purpose and goal of infill development. So in having that conversation, once we have a draft in front of us, um, I love that you put the example in there about college courts. Um, you know, that's, you know, a time honor planner, um, housing planning that's been along for a long time that a lot of our communities got away from when it became more profitable to do single family detached in apartments. So when we talk about addressing moderate income housing and or that missing middle, that, uh, that affordable t housing for our police officers and firemen and teachers and folks like myself where, you know, we don't want to live in an apartment and I don't need a $400,000 house, but I would like to have a house in that capacity. So um, definitely into that and talking about um, the density bonus. That's been something that Rebecca has been preaching with tenants to homeowners for the longest and how do we use it as an economic driver since it is, um, we are preempted by state statute uh, to do more creative inclusionary zones and how do we reach out to our, our private developers um, to learn how to work um, with a CHOTO or a housing trust fund to do some of that um, selling of lots for cost to um, be able to have um, additional density to create mixed income housing, not just mixed development um, neighborhoods, but mixed development, mixed, mixed income housing. So, you know, that part is incentives. I know that'll come in after um, we have talks about the drug draft. Um, and then the other piece, I know you're starting to transition into the administrative piece. And a couple of months back, we had a very good, healthy discussion about a development project um, with, um, on research and where the developer came back and had a substantive change to the development, but it wasn't in a way that it was substantive to be um, that it negatively impacted the the project, but it positively impacted the project. And because of that, it would have started the talk over again on that particular project. And so um, 
I think we can go back in the archives and find it, but you know, Jeff, who is our, our resident subject matter guru, um, it kind of tripped him up a bit, and I think it kind of left the commission in a bit of a standstill to know that a substantive, a substantive change that has a positive impact would start the process all over again, and how do we end the administrative piece if something like that comes up uh, as it relates to substantive changes and the positive, how do we move forward in that that doesn't require it to go back to planning or to or however, so um, that was just something when I saw that the group would be transitioning to administrative mm -hmm. pieces that we kind of look into that and talk about mm -hmm. how do we make that whole. So um, other than that, great work. I'm excited, I'm ready to start talking incentives and, and economic development policies after we mm -hmm. get a good code back in front of us. Commissioner Larson. Yeah, just want to just add a few things. Um, there's quite a bit about this that I really, really am liking what I'm seeing so far. And from the buffer zones to the cluster developments, we've got, um, you know, dwellings, multiple dwellings on a single lot. There's there's just so much I'm seeing that I think is, is definitely um, the direction that we need to be heading. And I do appreciate all the work that's being done. And I'm really looking forward to the draft version to come, come back to us. Thank you. All right. Thank you very much. Thanks, Elizabeth. Okay. So my real goodbye. Thank you. Thank yes. you. Your real goodbye. Yes. I love the sum up. That was great. You guys have a great evening. All right. Thank you. Thank as you. Well. Take care. Bye bye. All right. Um, moving us on to our regular agenda items, but before that, uh, do we are we all good? Do we need to take a bio break of any sort or anything? No, I'm good. Go for it. Thank you. All right, I'll move us on. Okay, uh, agenda item number one: consider adopting on first reading ordinance number one zero zero one six, an ordinance of the City of Lawrence, Kansas, repealing existing Article twenty two of the Code of City of Lawrence and enacting in its place Article two two of the Code of City of Lawrence, Kansas, two thousand eighteen edition, and amendments here thereto pertaining to the city's conservation of historic resources code. Thank you, Mayor, Vice Mayor. Commissioners, Lynn Braddock-Zollner, Historic Resources Administrator for the city. Um, as you noticed in the outline for this agenda item, we've been working on this particular project for several years. Uh, we had our public meetings last January, so we've been working diligently on this draft since that time, making sure that all the public comment that we received and all the work with the Historic Resources Commission was actually incorporated into the chapter. So I'm excited to be here tonight. It's been a long time coming. I think there's some really good changes in the new draft. And just quickly to go over some of those, um, probably the biggest change is to change the environs review to a context review. It's a happier, gentler type of review. Um, there's some um, great things about that and that most projects can be done administratively except for demolition of primary structures, um, construction of new primary structures, additions over 20% of the building footprint, and uh, second floor additions. 
the um, one of the things you probably noticed if you looked at the old code to the new code is we changed certificate of appropriateness to certificate of approval. Certificate of appropriateness seemed um, like it was more subjective, whereas when you go to a certificate of approval as similar to a building permit, um, you're getting that approval for the project. Um, another good thing about the changes is the context review and the listed property reviews have separate requirements and guidelines. In the old chapter, it was all lumped together. Didn't matter if it was an environs review or if it was a listed property review. They all had the same guidelines and standards. So this new chapter divides that up. Um, the more strict review is still for those properties that are listed in Lawrence Register, but if it does happen to be in that context review, um, the review standards are not as stringent. Uh, there are also drawings that illustrate um, the guidelines for the district. Um, I know the Historic Resources Commission spent some time with these guidelines making sure that they were appropriate and actually helped to um, clarify what guidelines were for the listed property and what they were for the context area review properties to help clarify um, those changes. Changes. Another change in the project was the context reviews are only for projects that are visible from the public right of way. Um, this, the right of way, um, the radius would be 250 feet, like it is with the environs now. A big change is currently, if your property touches within that 250 foot buffer zone, anything on the property gets reviewed for a certificate of appropriateness. This chapter would change that in that there's a 250 foot property review um, criteria, but it would only review things that are in that 250 foot buffer. So if the buffer just grabs a corner of the property and there's no structure or anything in that corner of the property, but the house is doing a major addition, that major addition would not get approved because it, w it would not get reviewed because it's not in that 250 foot buffer area. Uh, here's a big one that I like. <laughs> And it's that the HRC may approve projects with conditions. Right now, the HRC has to say yes, no, or send it to the Architectural Review Committee. If they have conditions that they want to place on it or it goes to the Architectural Review Committee, they have to wait until the next Historic Resources Commission to get that final approval. Depend if, the way we do things now with our iCompass deadlines and having to get information in time to make those deadlines, make the packet posting a week before, this can actually add a couple months um, to an applicant who's trying to get through the process. Conditional of use would allow 
for the Historic Resources Commission to make those conditions. And if the applicant met those conditions, then staff could review and administratively release those projects. So the um, applicant would not have to wait another month or two months to come back to the Historic Resources Commission for that final approval. Um, a couple of other things to um, take note of is the criteria for de designation as a landmark on the Lawrence Register of Historic Places has been changed to more be in line with the Secretary of the Interior Standards and the National Park Service criteria for listing in a historic register. And one of the things that I'm really excited about because this has been a challenge in the past is their emergency procedures have been added to the chapters so that if something happens to a building and there's a life safety issue, it doesn't have to wait till the next Historic Resources Commission meeting um, before that demolition can take place. We actually had a structure a couple years ago that developed a sinkhole on one side of the structure and it was causing the whole side of the structure and part of the yard to cave in but because it was in the environs it was supposed to go to the HRC before that demolition could proceed. So with this change if the building uh, code official deems it unsafe and dangerous it allows that demolition to move forward without having to wait for the next historic resources commission meeting. So with that, the action requested for you this evening is to adopt Ordinance 10016 on first reading for an ordinance of the City of Kansas, Lawrence, Kansas, repealing existing Article 22 of the Code of the City of Lawrence and enacting in its place Article 22 of the Code of the City of Lawrence 2018 edition and amendments thereto pertaining to the City's Conservation of Historic Resources Code. And I'd be happy to stand for any questions that you may have. Thank you. Uh, all right, uh, that'll open it up to questions from the Commission. I have a few questions. Um, thanks for this. I mean, obviously, it's some great changes. Um, a few specific questions, but more kind of just kind of general um, questions you think on the impact. You know, so for example, I know a lot more things are going to be administrative. Do you have a guess on how much smaller the HLC, I mean, how much would be administrative and how much smaller the HLC agendas are? Are we talking 20% decrease, 50%, 80? I think, it, I think it would probably be about half because right now all of those things go to the Historic Resources Commission, whereas, and we have a lot of environs reviews. So if those reviews could be done administratively, then we'd have fewer cases going to the HRC. So I wouldn't, you know, want to commit to a number, yeah. but I would think that it would be significant. And I guess, 
as you said, another big change is you don't have to always bounce back to the HOC. That obviously reduce the HOC agendas possibly if they're doing the conditional and they're not bouncing back again. Mm -hmm. Yes. I, yes. I think that happens a decent amount. Yeah, we have a lot of projects where um, there may be two or three tweaks that need to be made, and the commission can't approve it because those changes need to be made. The architect's standing here, and he can say he can make them, but he doesn't have the drawings and the things to go with that to make those changes. So he has to go back to the drawing board, make the changes, get back on an HRC agenda. If it were conditional approval, he could go back to the board, make the changes that the, ARC, that the HRC wanted, and then staff could sign off on that project once he resubmits with those changes. Great. Um, I know there's a couple questions about um, how this would apply. Would it? How would this apply, how would the, this historic code treat um, ADUs? I know that's one of the things we're looking to do more of in the new development code. I think I saw something about primary structures, but can you talk about how an ADU might be affected by this? Yes, um, historically, ADUs were included in many of our historic districts. So there is a historic precedent for having ADUs in historic areas. Um, the ADU would be considered an accessory structure. And so um, it would not get reviewed um, because it's an accessory structure and not a primary structure for um, new construction, uh, demolition of new uh, primary structures and additions over 20% or the addition of a second story. So um, new ADUs built um, along the alley, as long as they meet the criteria for ADUs and the development code um, would be allowed in the historic resources code. I think I'm, like, I'm sure I know the answer to this, but I'll ask just in, just in case. The, again, as we try to look at more duplexes or triplexes, HLC doesn't look at use. They only look at form and structure. So the, if it's a duplex or a triplex, it doesn't matter. You're only looking at the structure and how it relates. Right. The only time the HRC looks at use would be when um, it's a special use permit for adaptive reuse, and that goes along hand in hand with the Planning Commission looking at those projects. Um, they do have the ability to comment on Board of Zoning Appeals applications and other special use permits. They can't take action, but they can supply a comment to the City Commission and the Planning Commission. That's good. Um, what do you think, I mean, generally, if now that some of these things, you know, someone wants to change the windows next door to an historic structure and they submit a drawing and it's now administrative or whatever, what what's the, the time frame do you expect that they, it would take to do that administrative review? 
Well, right now we would hope that that design review would be concurrent with the building permit review. And we have, as um, an office, adopted a goal of getting first round reviews back to the applicant within five days. Um, so we would hope that the administrative review, at least the comments, would be back to the applicant within that five-day period. Most of it depends on the applicant returning um, the information that's required. So that first review time is up to city, city staff. But from that point forward, it's really up to the applicant to get their material in that needs further review. Kind of related to that, how, can you talk about how maybe the new uh, I want to say a new system, a new licensing system. How, how will that play into getting your comments back? I think they'll be much quicker because um, as we go through this new software, that when you apply for um, a demolition or um, design review application or a planning application or even a building code application, there are certain requirements that you have to upload into the city system or it won't move you along the path. So a lot of times one of the comments we have for design review is show us a site plan with a north arrow. So site plan requirement would be one of those things that you would have to upload with your project. So that would take care of that one last thing, that review comment that has to keep going back and back. That's great. Hmm. Um, <clears throat> Let's see, two specific questions, and I'll ask you the question I asked Elizabeth. Um, this was a kind of a specific question. In, in 22602, applications for economic hardship, two of the last ones, and I had um, someone suggest this to me, one says it, there has to be a statement from the State Historic Preservation Office that the subject property is not eligible for historic preservation financial in incentives. And if you can comment on this, some people say there's a lot of things that are eligible for it, but they don't give out very much money. Right. And so is it really just the eligibility or is it that you didn't get the actual award? I think it's really the eligibility um, okay. that's showing that there are financial incentives if you choose to go. They are competitive grants but there is um, historic preservation um, state tax credit program that's available to everyone. It is a 25% tax credit um, for the overall cost of the rehabilitation. And so as long as you're listed in the state or national register, you're available to take advantage of that credit. If it's an income producing property, there is a national um, historic preservation tax credit, which is um, a 20% rehabilitation tax credit. Um, and they are credits, so um, at the end of the year, you get a certificate from um, KDOR, and they it's actually taken off as a credit on your taxes. Okay. So if it's if you're eligible for it, then you wouldn't be eligible for it. Okay. Um, 
two last questions. Then one, um, we've changed it so the the review, you know, the, the change has to be visible from a public right of way. And I believe the original recommendation was alleys did not count as public right of ways. I think HRC changed that to make alleys public right of ways. So if someone can see it from an alley, so the back, I mean, if would there be any part of a house if you have a street in an alley that couldn't be seen? I mean, would is that the intent that? Well, I think the intent was more to look at those accessory structures along the alley and try to keep that alleyscape um, more historic with the alleys pushed up, the accessory structures pushed up um, to that alley property line so that you have that historic feel of structures along the alley and those structures not overwhelming the property line. So as long as you had a historic accessory structure or a new historic or non-historic accessory structure, then you would not be able to see the rear of the house. So that would um, change depending on the actual um, complexity of the project. So if you had an accessory unit that blocked the view of the back of the house from the alley, that could be different? Yes. I see. Interesting. And I know there was quite a bit of discussion um, when this was going through the public process about whether alleys should be included in the public right-of-way or not, and I think that was pretty much a split decision on whether um, alleys should be included in the public right-of-way description. Brad, quick, can I interrupt for a second? Yeah. Can you under, can you explain overwhelming the property line a little bit more? It did did was that the answer to your question basically that if it overwhelms and obscures the view of the structure, or what is overwhelming the property line when you used that term earlier just a few seconds ago? If it's something like a four-car garage that encompasses the entire width of the property and is two and a half to three stories, that would really impact that overall visual character okay. of the alley. Okay, great, thanks. Okay, I'll think about that one. Um, my last question then, I know, um, kind of like I asked Elizabeth, you know, I know obviously we wouldn't, hopefully, we'll pass this tonight. Um, and how do you see, as we go through the development code, how, how chapter 22 and 20 will overlap and how those, if you see any changes, how this might change and adapt to, to mesh with that new code? Or have you been involved in that at all? A little bit, and I'll refer to Jeff. It's, um, he's the expert on the new development code. But I anticipate growing pains with the new Chapter 22. It hasn't been revised since the 80s. Um, there are a lot of things that have changed since the 80s. We may not have captured all of those in this draft. Um, so I'm sure as we go through the development code, especially with things like adaptive reuse um, and ADUs, those will be things that we want to make sure those codes mesh on. And so I think I can foresee that you may be seeing updates to Chapter 22 as we finish that development code and get those codes to align. Looks like Jeff jumped up if he wanted to add anything. Hmm. <clears throat> I 
I'm not sure I could have said it any better or eloquently there, but I'm happy to answer any questions about that because I know those, these processes are running effectively concurrently. So I think you're going to see, you know, 20 and 22 trying to get synced up. Quite truthfully, for the first time ever, You've, we've never seen those two chapters of the code ever come aligned like they're about to be. So it's a it's a very exciting time for that. And I guess just to be clear, if I mean I, I agree with you, I think one of the things we're trying to do is mesh those two, and. So even if we pass this tonight, if, if, you know, as we get into 20, you could see us amending 20 and 22 at the same time so we can have a seamless process um, once we figure out what that process might be in the development code. It might not, not, might not make any changes, but there might be something. I think absolutely. I think that if, you know, it's the time to make those corrections and get them dialed in together because it's going to be hopefully pretty close, but inevitably there's going to be maybe a little bit of a mixed wire once or twice in there, but I think it's both times it's to get 20 and 22 in the same spot and have them seamlessly connect. That's the goal. Okay. Thank you. Those are all my questions. Okay. Any additional questions there, Vice President? Um, I have a couple, if you'd let me, please. I yep. appreciate it. Um, so I appreciate all the um, previous and, and, and the additional feedback tonight. Uh, thank you, Lynn and Jeff, for some of your help on this um, for me understanding where we're headed. Um, I just want to make sure I touched on a few things about um, the the alley issue in, in 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 particular because I feel like if we're going to uh, use the alley as a public right of way and and you know we'll call it a an extension of our our public infrastructure, I think it's important for us to start talking about the maintenance of those alleys and you know if we're going to consider them thoroughfares or places where people walk or drive, then let's make them suitable for that use. Um, and uh, in particular, I know that our city's working on some areas f just for uh, purposes of waste and uh, the ability to pick up and, and transport waste. But I think in general, I think the alleys, if we're gonna start focusing and continue to use that, I think we need to keep uh, an eye on uh, uh, improving those right-of-ways if, if we can um, to the best of our abilities and not inhibiting some of the paving over of the bricks, which I know the city just did in some alleys recently, and just, you know, to make it useful for the purpose which is intended, which is a right-of-way. So I think it's important to talk about that uh, tonight. And then uh, you talked about aligning some of our pro processes and procedures with uh, the National Park Services, which I agree with and in general. And, I, I, and we talked about this before, and I want to bring this up in alignment with um, our, our SHPO. And, and you know the state of Kansas uh, removing some of the, um, we'll call it the radius area around some of these historical buildings. And uh, I know we're talking about uh, changing it to context review. I think is the, the term. Um, and so I want to, if you could speak to that a little bit about why we're going to continue to have areas outside of the specific zone which is required um, by the state and federal um, standards why we're going to continue to do so in the future and maybe just kind of explain um, how you've decided to keep that going okay well the um, initially properties listed in the state or national register had a 500 foot um, buffer zone for environs review 
when that was taking place and chapter 22 was being developed, it was the opinion of the public and the commission at that time that 500 feet was too large of an area for an environs review. They changed the environs review to 250 feet, which is basically a half a block. And so um, there aren't that many um, municipalities that do context review. There are some, and it is becoming more popular as we're looking at trying to preserve historic resources in their context. Um, I think it's important because a historic property sitting alone uh, really doesn't have that overall context that partially goes to why it's important and why it was listed in the beginning, like the neighborhood or the block. Um, if it's an important person, how he interacted within that neighborhood or that block. So I think it's important to have that context. I think um, the review criteria we had for that 250 feet uh, was too stringent. I think that bringing it into a context review and having those projects reviewed administratively with those new design criteria um, is important and I think it's a very good happy medium to help preserve that context area of the listed property while not overreaching into areas that really aren't within that immediate um, context of the listed property. Okay, so, um, so continuing to do so to, to maintain our, our context review, you feel comfortable that with the changes that we've made, it's going to become less onerous to people who are trying to do minor things and maybe more um, speedy as well in order to deliver the assessment and review that they need in order to move forward with their project. Um, because I believe rather than the existence of of this context review it's more about how we how we review it and the speed with which we do so um, mm -hmm. and and more importantly the cost to do so and i think to get the improvements we want in these neighborhoods we want to, to allow them to have those um the flexibility needed to do so and spend the money on the structure not on the process so yes um, i think that's important to talk about um and then the talked about the site plan review um, I think that's really important that um, your, I think when you talked about the speed of which, with which things will go, um, I think speed is not important necessarily because I think, um, you know, to the city, but I think to developers it's important to know um, how much time it's going to be required um, to get some feedback and I think um, just having information is going to really be a positive step forward um, quicker so that people can make determinations and, and, and decisions faster and so that and they, and they know the cost of doing so. Um, I appreciate uh, Brad covered a lot of my questions previously. We tried to uh, get this stuff squared away ahead of time so I appreciate that with you. So thanks for your, your feedback tonight. Thank you. Okay. Any additional questions from the commission? Not seeing any. Um, all right. Thank you, Lynn. I'll open this up to public comments. And any public comment here in the room? <clears throat> Thank you, Mr. Mayor. My name is Mike Delaney. I'm the um, president of the Lawrence Preservation Alliance. 
Uh, my predecessor, uh, uh, Dennis, is here uh, as well tonight. Um, we submitted a letter uh, supporting the changes that the HRC uh, has proposed and, and um, are included in the ordinance. And I wanted to make a couple of points that, that we made in the letter, but expand a little bit on them as well. Um, as you can imagine, those of us in the Preservation Alliance have an interest in maintaining historic properties in the city. Uh, on the other hand, we also have an interest in maintaining the public support for the notion of historic preservation. And so we were keen, as we looked at the proposed changes, to, to find places where there had been constant sources of irritation and see what could be done to minimize those. And uh, as we looked at this, we made some of the uh, of the changes that were made in the uh, in, the, in the initial drafts that the uh, that uh, staff came up with came about as a result of proposals that we had made. For example, changing the 250 feet to include only the, a portion of a, of a proposed change that would actually fall within 250 feet of the protected structure rather than anywhere on, on a lot that sat within 250 feet. And, and we think th uh, these changes go a long way to reducing the kinds of, of uh, concerns that have been raised in the past over minor changes producing uh, um, uh, significant delays, additional costs, and those sorts of things. Um, that said, we think it is important to keep the context, a, a context review of some sort, administrative in most cases, in, in, the, uh, 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 in the city's ordinance. Um, we, we think actually, at least from the initial, uh, the, the initial discussions at the land use code, in, in the land use code, um, the, the, the steering committee has been thinking about context sort of, context evaluation of other changes in a particular neighborhood anyway, and talking about how things would be different in, in neighborhoods that have alleys than they would be in neighborhoods out in the suburbs that, that uh, where all the entries are from the street. And, so, and we think it is important to protect the historic structure or the historic district from significant damage that occurs with out of scale, too large, uh, structures built right up next to them, and that 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 um, uh, that idea is being carried forward in the current regulation, um, and and we we appreciate that. Now, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Mike. Good evening, commissioners. Dennis Brown, a longtime LPA board member. We started tracking this code revision in 2014. I was president of LPA at the time. I was thinking, wow, 2015, maybe 2016, we, you know, this thing will be happening. You know, I, I know a little better now, but it has been, it has been a very long time. And it's been in public uh, comment for a lot of that time too, but also a lot of time that was in the staff and a lot of staff hours, not just the planning staff, but also staff from the, uh, uh, the city manager's office and a lot of legal staff hours 
on this. So we feel that's all embodied in a, in a good, a good uh, revision that we're so happy is finally coming before us tonight. Um, you know, there's a point where if a code revision is taking such a long time, there's a sense, at least I felt a sense, that it's becoming a lame duck code. Get the new code, get the revised code in place, and let's go places with it. Um, I think this, this long process has gotten to the point where it's kind of slowing the community down. So we're hoping that you can pass this tonight. We're following, LPA has been following the LDC uh, steering committee process. Uh, we understand that there'll be a point where those two will have to be looked at and uh, mesh a little bit. We have a lot of confidence in the uh, consultant that you're working with for the land development code. We feel like they have a good understanding of preservation principles. But when we get to that point, we would say, please include the HRC in, in that part of the process. Thanks. Thank you. Any further public comment here in, in the room? Not seeing any. Um, Sherry, any on Zoom? Uh, yes, Rob Richardson. Good evening, Commissioners. Thank you very much for listening to the public testimony this evening. I have a couple of comments. I work with the Lawrence Economic Development uh, Commission, and they've asked me to look at this ordinance in relationship to the development code and other issues within the community related to economic development. <clears throat> the, the first one I would mention is one that was mentioned by Com Commissioner Finkeldye, and that is that when the staff is given a task, and there's no time associated with it, I really feel like you could have some due process issues uh, in how long that takes and with the lack of certainty. And well, the staff will review it and this is our goal, but we don't have to get to it. I mean, I've heard our members give me examples currently in the planning process of their applications being held over simply because staff didn't get to it. And I don't think that's where anyone wants to be with this. So I think within this process and any other process, if there's a staff process, there should be a time frame associated with that. Obviously, there can be emergencies that where that could be overridden, but in general, there should be a specific time frame with that. And I would suggest 30 days. In Section 22.210.B21, there's uh, the ability of the HRC to delegate some duties to staff. But the code doesn't tell us which ones those would be. I would suggest that all of those should be all of those duties should be dedicated to staff as part of the ordinance. And then when this is reviewed as part of its general report review and with the land development code, that that could be addressed again if it needed to be. But the uncertainty right there is something that is going to cause delay in the process for some applicant because the appointed body may not have made their decision yet, the staff won't know if it's their duty or the appointed body's duty, and you could clarify that this evening by simply giving those duties to the staff. The, um, there's another issue with, um, as Commissioner Finkel and I mentioned, 
with state aid. And as was noted by staff, uh, if you're a historic district or a historic structure, you're eligible for state tax credits. And if it's income producing, possibly national historic tax credits. But the state grant program, which I live in historic house and historic district, my house is contributing. I've applied for that grant myself personally. It is a political fiasco. There are 50 to 60, some, I mean, maybe on the low end 30, but I think the year I did it, it was 55 applications. Time. They were gonna fund about five right, of them. Sorry, so I really think that that should be, that part of it should be eliminated because you know they're eligible for Rob. tax credits, but probably not getting Thank the you. Cost. Thank you for listening. Okay. Courtney Shipley. Hello. Um, thank you so much. Um, I, I guess I just wanted to comment that, you know, the stakeholders have already done a lot of work with this. Um, and that work's been done in good faith, again, over a long period of time. And and in my view, has produced some really um, incredible train changes and compromise. Again, the things we know that were um, consistently becoming a problem for homeowners. Um, and I think this addresses a lot of those. It enables, you know, protection and, you know, better use uh, by homeowners. Um, it would be nice to see you pass this this evening. Um, I can understand uh, the feeling of conflicts with the new code revision, but again, a lot of work being done in good faith. As an example of, I, you know, my faith in the commission's ability to pivot and review would be, you know, the changes that we made for the um, density bonus, you know, we discovered very recently um, a conflict that, that made it difficult or impossible for um, one of our nonprofits to use the density bonus, and we were able to um, react and uh, have a positive conclusion with that. And I think the same thing could happen if you were to adopt these this evening, that when we find something, you know, in the next few months that is uh, in some kind of conflict with the rest of the code revisions, that you will be able to address that. So um, I think that would be um, kind of a, a, a wise and uh, a fantastic compromise for you to adopt these this evening, uh, kind of based on uh, how much work has been done and how much more useful it is now than it has been in the past. Um, and uh, I, you know, we've all, as commissioners, seen uh, the the kinds of things, especially with environs that were uh, a huge problem consistently. And I feel that this addresses that. So uh, I appreciate your consideration of this, and I appreciate Commissioner Fingledy's question. Questions. I think that they really lean towards identifying what could make this uh, better as it, you know, meshes with the code changes. So thank you. That's all the comments, Mayor. Okay. Thank you. I'll bring it back to us. Any further discussion? Quick question for Lynn, based upon what Rob asked, and I guess maybe I read it a little differently than he did. Twenty. I'll let you come up first. <laughs> that section 22-210 lists commission duties and then has a whole list of addition to other responsibilities specified in the chapter, the commission shall. And I think he was suggesting that should be the staff should lead that, not necessarily the commission. I guess I didn't necessarily read that as being either or, but what was the intent of having all those things that the commission might have the power to do, I guess. 
We have a certified local government agreement with the State Historic Preservation Office. They set up guidelines for what commissions can and can't do, and those are the things that they identify that the commission can do, and then it would be up to the commission or the city commission in this case to identify if those had to be done by um, Historic Resources Commission, if they could delegate those to staff. And I think the point of um, the State Historic Preservation Office having those in there is that there's a board of accountability. Nice. And so ultimately, they are responsible for it. Um, if they get staff to do the work for them, that's great. But ultimately, it's their responsibility to make sure they're done. And Okay, so I'm clear on that. These, whatever this, all these 23 things, these all come really, mostly come from the state. This is their language, not stuff we created. Right. Okay, well that explains it. Thank you. <laughs> Except for the one that says staff can review things administratively. Yes. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, I mean, gosh. This has been a long process, 10 years. Um, you might have been there for the inception of it. <laughs> Not to date you, <laughs> but. <laughs> um, Bad penny. <laughs> turn back up. Uh, but yeah, it's a, I think it's been said through um, the conversation on this that, uh, you know, it's been a long process and a, a lot of input and a lot of public comment and a lot of people contributing to it and all different levels, but. With that, I think this is a good place to start. Um, what gives me a little bit of solace is what uh, Commissioner Finkeldye said, and I believe uh, Jeff said, um, that at some point, this is gonna mesh with our LDC um, and uh, the, the good work that the steering committee is doing there, that hopefully we can have a seamless process where they're, they're both working in concert. So um, that gives me a little bit of comfort that there's a little bit more fluidity to it um, that there's, it's more malleable, that it can change and grow as we need it to. But uh, um, as people have said, I think we need to start somewhere. So um, where we are right now looks good to me. I would jump in and say a couple th things. One, thank you for everyone who's worked on this for so long. And I don't know who's older, Dennis or Mike, but no, um, <laughs> who's been working on this longer. But thank you for that. And, and, uh, as, as Courtney said, you know, the, there's been a lot of work on this, lots of stakeholders, a lot of give and take. And really the fact that there's not very many people here talking about it, except, you know, the folks who've been involved, um, I think that's a great testament. And I mentioned earlier, hoping when we get to the end of the LDC code, I wouldn't mind that it's been so talked about that when it gets here for final adoption, not many people show up because they felt like they've had a hand in that process. Um, you know, so certainly there might be some things, you know, I personally might tweak left or right or, you know, up or down, but I think, um, you know, it, this has all come to us as a package after a lot of work, and so I'm certainly going to support it tonight. Um, I agree with Dennis that getting this going, um, and as Lynn said, we're not going to hit everything right, so we need to get it in place, get it working, um, and really by the time we get to that, you know, the summer, um, when we get to the development code, we'll have four or five months of 
seen how this works, and so I think we'll be able to work those in together, and then obviously as time goes on, we can um, continue to look at it. Um, but, you know, it's, there's certainly people who have lots of opinions about the HOC code and how it works, and again, I'm, I'm pretty impressed that where we are today, um, um, people feeling good about it, or at least they're not here saying they're not feeling good about it. But uh, obviously, the big ones that we are appreciative of, I mean, I do think that, you know, some of those touch points, as mentioned earlier, the 250-foot buffer zone, if it just touched the corner of the property, that was always a big thing. The visibility is a big thing. You know, I'm, you know, I, I understand where we're coming from on the alley. That might be one of the things I would tweak, but, you know, maybe see how that works. Um, and, and I guess this is a suggestion I know I think you probably already do this. I know Jeff does it from the, 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 the development side. I mean, I'd be interested, you know, for tracking those metrics, like, you know, how long does these, this review take? You know, are we getting things done in five days, both from the development and HOC side? You know, I'd be interested, you know, six months from now, a year from now, looking back to see how much the HOC agenda has shrunk. I mean, is it 20%, is it 50%, is it 80%? Maybe we missed the mark there one way or the other. So having some of those metrics, whenever we come back to look at this, um, you know, to have some of those metrics. Um, but, um, you know, in short, I'm, I, I do think it, it's a good step forward and, and a, good, a good balance um, between the competing interests. So I'll definitely support it tonight and, and look forward to meshing it with the, the development code as we move forward. Yeah, I'm just going to chime in. I, I was fortunate enough to meet with staff before this meeting to get a lot of my questions answered, and I'm not going to talk a lot about um, what I want to see in the future. But in this instance, I think um, several commenters uh, mentioned this, and I think it's important to say is that it may not be exactly what we want or what I want or what the community wants, but you know, progress is important. Perfection is very difficult to achieve, but I think this is real progress, and I believe reading through this and hearing a lot of the negative feedback on some of our historical processes and procedures. Um, I feel like this is a step forward in the right direction. I also had some concern about it coalescing with our land development code and, and some of the existing potential um, friction points. And I think that's something that we really need to focus on and stay ahead of if we can as soon as possible. Um, really. In this instance, uh, we have a great responsibility uh, with, um, with the delegation from the State Historical Preservation Office, and I think we need to take that responsibility seriously. And, you know, this very long code is confusing to a lot of people, but it, you know, is, contains a lot of, you know, federal and state regulatory, you know, language. And uh, I understand that more than anybody, but I think it's important to make it as simple as possible for people to understand. And so um, when, if we can make it clear um, and, and concise on how one needs to proceed, that's really what I want to strive for. And I think this is a step in that direction. So I'm excited to be a part of that change. Any further comment? Not seeing any Commissioner Larson, Commissioner Sellers. Okay. I'd move to adopt the first reading ordinance number one zero zero one six. Uh a second. I have a first and a second. All those in favor please say aye. 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 
Okay. That's five zero. Passes. Thank you very much. All right. Um, our next item is consider a landmark nomination. Uh, I'm sorry. Thank you, Len, for all of your hard work. He's on got it. the next two. Oh, you got the next one, too. You're not going anywhere. No. That's right. She had to, That's right. Oh we my. ran late, and I, I, I still feel bad about that. <laughs> um, consider the, a landmark nomination L2300021 to the land, or sorry, the Lawrence Register of Historic Places for 1124 New Jersey Street, the Henry Waters House, and adopt on first reading ordinance number 10023. All the way to the left, top left. There. You got it. Here you go. Okay, I just have to say, this is my favorite part of my job. <laughs> <laughs> not that doing chapter 22 for 10 years was not my favorite. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but this is truly my favorite part. Landmark nominations, looking at the history of Lawrence, finding out how it goes through and looks at different opportunities that we've had in the city, some things that are architecturally significant, and then some things that you really wouldn't think about. The first nomination you have this evening is 1124 New Jersey Street. It's the Henry Waters House, and it's a landmark nomination to the Lawrence Register of Historic Places. In your packet, there was a nomination form to the National Register of Historic Places, and this has since been listed in the National Register. This shows the property location here outlined in the kind of um, blue color with 12th Street at the bottom, and this is New Jersey. This is the main facade of the Waters House. You can't really see it because the um, photograph was a little heavy, but there are brackets underneath this wide overhanging eave. This is going up a little bit closer on that main facade, the west facade, and there again, you can see those brackets on the overhanging eaves. The building was built in 1872, and this is showing that north side in a little bit closer. And this is showing that south side and the rear and south side and then just the rear this is a 1995 photograph we have of the structure at that time the front porch had already been altered um, but the remaining of the structure was in good architectural um, structure this is a 1954 photograph of the structure. A couple of things you can see here um, that hopefully the applicant is um, applying for tax credits and going to do some significant repair to the property. And one of the things she'll do is rehabilitate the porch um, similar to this or similar to a style that would be appropriate for an Italianate structure. 
Um, the house is being listed under Criterion 1 for its character, interest, or value as part of the development, heritage, or cultural characteristics of the community. Um, this is a really neat house because Henry Waters constructed the house with a basement purpose-built for manufacturing and distribution of patent medicine. And if you notice in the National Register nomination, it talks a little bit about that patent medicine community, which I found very interesting. It's also being nominated under Criteria 4, which is for its architecture. So staff is recommending that you adopt on first reading ordinance number 10023, and I would be happy to answer any questions that you may have. Thank you, Lynn. All right, any questions from the commission? No, sir. Okay. Not, can't quite see Commissioner Larson on there. But okay, I'm not seeing any or hearing any. Um, I'll move us on to public comment. Any public comment in the room? Not seeing any or looking at any? Uh, any on Zoom, Sherry? No, Mayor. Okay, bringing it back. Any further discussion? I don't think so. All right. Anyone want to make a motion on this? I would just say it's really neat house. I'd <laughs> I, never, I don't know if I've been down that block in New Jersey to, to go see it. It's, uh, it does stick out there, so it's a really cool house. So, Looks like it. Yeah. So I moved to adopt on first. Commissioner Larson might. Oh, oh okay. I didn't, I didn't see her. No, I'm fine. I just was uh, looking at the house, too. So, and no, it's, it looks great. I'm, I'm happy to have this um, go through. All right. I'd move to adopt on first reading ordinance number 10023. I'll second that motion. I have a first and a second. All those in favor, please say aye. 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 All right. And that's 5-0, none opposed. All right. Now our, our second one. Item number three, consider a landmark nomination L23-00248, the Lawrence Register of Historic Places for the historic Kansas River Bridgestone Pier and adopt on first reading ordinance number 10024. Okay, this is really unique. In the history of landmarking things in the city of Lawrence, we've never landmarked an object. <laughs> so this was really unique, and we asked a lot from the applicant to try to justify why you would um, nominate something that's not associated with an existing building or an existing bridge or um, something of that nature. They did an excellent job in coming back to staff and they kept coming back with all this incredible information um, that staff was satisfied to bring this to the HRC and they were also very impressed with the application and it's now moving forward to you. Um, this is a stone pier. I don't know if you've ever noticed it before. 
It was probably most notable when they did the Bowersark Dam reconstruction. You could actually see, and I've got a photograph of that. Um, it's likely that the pier was part of the construction of the 1870 bridge that crossed the Kansas River at Lawrence. This is showing the location. It's this very small blue square here. This would be City Hall right to the east of that. And then the new bridge is here. This is that photograph I was explaining that was taken in February of 22 um, that really has a good um, view of what the stone pier looks like. Um, this is the original bridge construction in 1863 <clears throat> and the 1917 bridge. This is the bridge and dam under construction in 1870. While the stone pier is not visible um, based on some of the evidence that was submitted by the applicant, it appears that the stone pier was part of this 1870s construction. This is a photograph, the date unknown. And then this is prior to 1886, and you can see the stone pier here. Uh, this was an interesting photograph because staff had concerns about uh, where the pier was in relationship to the historic bridge versus the new bridge, well, new 1918 or so, and how much of that pier was um, part of that 1870 bridge. And so this photograph shows the trolley that's crossing that new bridge, and over here you still have the historic bridge. So it had not been removed by the time the new bridge uh, was constructed. Um, this property is being nominated under criteria one and two. It's um, for its character, interest, or value as part of the development, heritage, or cultural characteristics of the community, particularly um, that it, the 1870 historic bridge that crossed the Kansas River is part of the transportation history of the city of Lawrence. Criterion two is the location as a site of a significant local, county, state, or national event. Uh, this, uh, there was a lot of information on this in your packet, and I know some of you may have been involved with putting the marker to the west of City Hall about the lynching that took place there in 1870. The 1870 bridge was there in 1882 with the lynching of Isaac King, George Robertson, and Peter Vinegar. Um, this was a significant event in the history of Lawrence, and while we have the marker, we also have this tangible evidence of the bridge that existed to where the lynching took place. And so it's important to embrace all aspects of history and look at the things that we can learn from and hopefully not celebrate, but commemorate. 
So staff is asking that you adopt on first reading ordinance number 10024. I'd be happy to stand for any questions you may have. Uh, any questions? Um, a couple questions, just more out of, because it's the first object. Well, first, I, I assume this whole area is already under the downtown historic district, or most of it is. This wouldn't really change any review. No, it is now, and it's not included in the downtown historic district. It, it is not. It is in not. the downtown conservation overlay district. It's in the conservation, but it's not in the historic district? It is not in the historic district. Is City Hall or Abe and Jake's in the historic district? No, but Abe and Jake's is listed individually in the Kansas Register. Okay. I guess that was one, I guess my kind of question was, I'm not sure it makes a difference, but how would you do a context review related to a object like this? I mean, if someone wanted to develop City Hall into something else, I mean, what, I'm just, based on our last conversation, what, what right. I mean, I'm just trying to think here about the context review of, of an object like this. Well, and it would be similar. It would use those design guidelines and the standards set forth in Chapter 22. But since the majority of the land is constructed and has mostly open space, um, then there wouldn't really be an opportunity to have those reviews. And in fact, the report that goes with the environs definition for this project specifically says as um, all reviews will be administratively approved, not just reviewed, but approved, except for things that directly impact the stone pier. Okay, I missed that point. Thank mm -hmm. you. That, that's helpful. I missed that. Thank you. Well, I mean, I think it's obviously a great, I mean, it is an important object, and certainly we learned a lot about it in the last, with the lynching that I did not know about it. So I, I was fine. I was just more curious <laughs> on that, those other issues. Yeah, and can I piggyback on that question? I had uh, seen uh, a couple of objects, bridges specifically, uh, that were constructed by landscape architects from Chicago. And specifically, this was in Lake Geneva where they had put objects on the register and, you know, kind of to protect um, them physically, you know, the, and, and to stop people from tearing them down and, and or building too close to them. But this is an object that, um, you know, doesn't have a significant architect per se or have any historical, you know, uh, opulence or value. It does have, you know, significant history. But um, the question I would have is having it in proximity to the river is it, you know, and any development that might occur nearby, um, would this become some unnecessary burden if somebody wanted to develop even just across the river? I, of course, that would be for, for far enough away, I guess, but mm -hmm. save it adjacent to the west or even to the east along the riverfront as we head towards Santa Fe. Is that a, do you envision that being a hindrance of, at all? Obviously, if we preserve it, but, but to protect it, shall we say, but not necessarily impede development nearby it. Does that make sense? Yes, and I don't think it would impede development nearby it because the way the legal description is written is very specific 
to just the pier. It doesn't include any of the land. Normally when we landmark a structure, it's from the parcel, but this is just specifically for that stone pier. Okay. And one of the great things about this is we're looking at options for the Lawrence Loop. Uh, one of those options is to come by here and there's the opportunity for signage and explanation to go along with the pier. And that wouldn't impede that, which is one reason I was asking. No, it would not it impede that. a great that. spot to fly by, and I was just curious if this would impact any grants we might want to apply for, you know, that kind of stuff. Because It can actually help Good. with the grants that we apply for that there is a historic component that would be recognized. Excellent. Any additional questions? All right. Not seeing or hearing any. Okay, I'll move us on. Thank you, Lynn. Uh, move us on to public comment. Any public comment here in the room? And any on Zoom, Sherry? Carrie Altenberg. Okay. Thank you, uh, commissioners, for uh, for considering this. Uh, uh, I uh, was the one who wrote this nomination in, in, in representing the Lawrence Douglas County Community Remembrance Project Coalition, who had, have been working for the last few years on the to commemorate the lynching and, and other other events in Lawrence. And uh, this bridge pier is uh, an important component of of that uh, because it was the site of the lynching, and it is no longer no longer around the only only tangible part above water of, of the bridge is this pier which makes it extremely important to the uh, interpretation of that story and as I think was said was before it's the only tangible part of that story that that still exists so uh, I, I hope that the uh, the Commission will uh, will approve this uh, nomination and and put uh, the, the pier on the, the Lawrence register where or hopefully it won't be the only uh, object because there are a lot of uh, historic objects in town that may not have been considered in the past and and, and can be in the future. So once again, uh, thank you for considering it. That's all the comments, Mayor. Okay, I'll bring it back, us, back to us for any discussion. More comments? None for me, sir. I believe Commissioner Larson yeah, I just want to um, thank Kerry for all the work that he's put into this, along with the Lawrence Douglas County Community Remembrance Project Coalition. Uh, as Kerry indicated, it's something that the group has worked on for quite some time, recognizing not just this, but several other historical aspects of, of our community that I think are really important. Um, and I just really appreciate the work they're putting into it, and I'm going to support it. Okay. Thank you, Commissioner Larson. Um, yeah, and uh, I would like to echo what Lynn said uh, on this particular object. Uh, I know that uh, uh, we don't usually do this for objects, but this uh, I think this is definitely uh, if it's a trendsetter or if it's a you know um, or if it's a special circumstance. Um, uh, but especially what Lynn said in terms of history, um, history is not always pretty, and it is not always. Um, it, uh, it, we, we need to 
learn to embrace it and uh, remember it most of all. And uh, this bridge or the, the pier on this bridge was something that had benefit. It, you know, it was one of the first, you know, transportation nodes that got people across the river to another part of town. But it also was a site of a horrific lynching. So um, I think uh, it has room to tell both those stories. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that we're recognizing it for that purpose. Uh, any additional comments or discussion? Okay. Entertainer. Move to adopt on first reading ordinance number 10024. I'll second it. Second. Yeah, please. <laughs> okay. I'll give, I'll give it to Commissioner Larson on this one. Uh, first and a second. All those in favor, please say aye. 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 All right. 5-0. It is approved or adopted. All right. Thank you very much, Len, for your patience. Thank you. Your long-standing patience <laughs> for the last month. I <laughs> uh, appreciate it. Um, all right. I will move us on to item G, commission items. And uh, any commission items for someone? Uh, Mayor, can I yes. speak to something Absolutely. that was brought up during public comment? Um, I think it's the appropriate time to do so. Somebody brought up a payment I got from uh, Nation Builders. Um, so just to clarify, the, the, the reimbursement I received from my campaign was for a website that manifests the, the handling of payments and the emails. And so the payment was to me to pay for the website that I used for the last year to uh, run my campaign. So in case anyone had any questions about that, they can ask me about that later. But um, I paid money to a website that ran my campaign for a year, and uh, that's the extent of reimbursement. So thank you. OK. Thank you. Um, I had a slight one. It was just a follow-up on the uh, um, LDC steering committee item. Uh, I just wanted to thank uh, Commissioner Finkeldy and uh, Elizabeth, after the fact, and you know Becky and Jeff, uh, for the emphasis on sustainability. I forgot to mention that. So <laughs> all the components of that, uh, I really appreciate it. So thank you, uh, and I look forward to seeing more about that, uh, you know, coming forward. So, Mayor, yeah. I have a couple items. Okay. Um, first, wanted to see when there would be an update from the Ferguson group. I know we usually get receive them. I didn't know if it was something that we have planned coming up probably before we start getting budget stuff in. Um, and then additionally on, I know we have future agenda items, so I'm not going to pre, I'll preempt my comments by discussing wanting to secure a date for that. Um, for the code inspection review, but I'll wait till we get to that under commit under city manager's report. Um, two, uh, SB 346 um, was read in today, and it has to deal with up zoning and down zoning and municipalities' authority over it. So I wanted to see if we can get staff to take a look at that and provide a memo report and then city managers about whether or not that's something that's gonna impact the work that we're doing with our land development code update. Um, and then did you say SB three SB three forty six okay. Senate Bill three forty six. I'm going to look at that. <laughs> yes. um, definitely reads out just upzoning and rezoning, rezoning and, and upzoning. Um, 
so I, I took a, a quick scan at it today, but wasn't able to put eyes on it, but wanted to make sure we looked at that. Um, third, if we could have legal bring back to us in a city manager's report, I would like some understanding on state statute as it relates to um, retaliatory evictions. Um, I know that we are doing work on, um, there's some stakeholders that are doing work on right to counsel, but I want to have a better understanding of retaliatory evictions or just landlords' rights to evictions um, in that capacity so I can get a better understanding of how all that works, how that work would impact or could potentially impact um, some of our right to counsel work that's uh, been going on. And then I think that covers my ask. And I just wanted to make a note today that um, I know I shared this last year um, and we didn't really catch wind with it. So, you know, hopefully in the next four years, maybe we can do something for this in the community. But today is a National Day of Healing. Um, it was started by the W.K. Kellogg Foundation. NBC Leo um, promotes this from within um, our constituency group through NLC um, and hoping that our communities will come together to um, have those what we call critical conversations. And so just wanted to share why racial healing matters. A um, couple of the bullet points is that it helps affirm the inherent value of all people in organizations and communities. It cultivates a culture of belonging that can advance racial equity and inclusion in communities. It deepens our understanding of the differences in opportunities, burdens, and needs that exist relative to how people racially and, ethnic, and ethnically identify. Um, it restores individuals to wholeness by helping people share their stories, lean into difficult conversations, constructively engage in conflict, and face conscious and unconscious biases. And lastly, it supports relationship building, trust, belonging, authenticity, constructive dialogue, and repairs the damage caused by systemic racism. It builds community. So just want everyone to remember that racial healing is an ongoing process, supportive of wholeness of individuals, communities, and societies. It benefits all people because regardless of background, we live and we are impacted by the narratives and conditions present throughout this increasing interconnected world. This process provides opportunities to acknowledge the tremendous damage inflicted by individuals and systemic racism and I would say other systems. Uh, when grounded in respectful truth and empathy and oriented, and oriented towards racial equity, it has restorative potential to affirm the inherent value of all people. So I want to take time to recognize today as um, National Day of Racial Healing. That is all. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, what was that first one, Commissioner Sellers? I, I got the uh, SB 243 and re retaliatory eviction. What was it? SB 346. Oh, SB 346, I'm sorry. And the first one is the Ferguson Group, okay. so our contractor that we use to look for funding opportunities for our project, for CIP projects and other. Okay. Yeah. How does that sound to the rest of the commission, those items? Sounds good. Okay, sounds good. Commissioner Larson? Okay. Is that all you need, guys? Okay. All right. Um, item H, city manager's report. Um, 
Craig. Thank you, Mayor. The only uh, thing is there was a utility report, which we give you periodically, as well as the um, future agenda item report. Okay. I believe Commissioner Sellers had a, did you have a question regarding? Yeah, um, I know we vacillate, uh, I didn't really put a timeline, or I thought <clears throat> maybe I did put a timeline on the over uh, rental inspection report, but it'd be nice if we can get that before I mean, if staff can let us know if we can have that before May, <laughs> or just un identify what it maybe are some of the potential barriers to why we haven't received the report, or if there's additional guidance needed on what to present on. It, it's been assigned, and maybe I'm speaking out of turn, but I know that group is currently working on um, implementing our EPL licensing system, which infects all of our rental inspection folks at every level in all of planning and development services. But I'll reach back out to them to make sure we can get a date scheduled on the calendar. But my guess is that's part of why that's hasn't been completed. Okay. That goes live in a couple of weeks, so we're working around the clock on that. Okay. Okay. Just, uh, I said this before, but I know we have the joint meeting tomorrow. I'm coming straight from court, so I'll have a tie on, so don't be mm -hmm. scared by that. But if I'm late, I'm coming in from, from court, and I'll be here as soon as I can. Okay. Drive safely. Yes. You don't have to give us an excuse as well. <laughs> I mean, especially if it's a bow tie. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> I'm not that debonair. Fashion forward. Yes. All right. Cool. And, and, and we kind of have a, a, a bookend stop because they, uh, the county has to convene their meeting mm -hmm. at another location. Mm -hmm. When is their meeting? Like 530 or 6? Mm. 530. 530. 530. Okay. 530. <clears throat> okay. Cool. Good to know. All right. Um, and this is a public comment item. So... <clears throat> I am not seeing any public comments in the room. Sherry, is there any public comment on Zoom? No, Mayor. All right. Bringing it back. Okay. Item I, commission calendar. How does it look? No observations for me. Mm -hmm. Sherry, just to remind myself, we're making a decision about March with NLC in February, correct? Yeah, I didn't get rid of any real feedback from the last time, so if you have an idea, if you're wanting to... I don't want to. ...move it or just cancel it, then I can bring that back as an action at that first meeting. Yeah, if you would, because okay. I, I think uh, we still have the open date of the 26th, I think. What was it? Because NLC is the 12th mm -hmm. okay that's what I thought okay yes if you would bring it back that'd be great and are you wanting to cancel it or move it to the last meeting in the month oh, we can go ahead and sort this right now we got time. <laughs> mm -hmm. well just um, would be easier because I could have that motion yeah yeah no that's item. awesome mm -hmm. so uh, I think I know Commissioner Sellers myself Commissioner Finkel and I will be at NLC on March 12th so would anyone be opposed to adding, moving that meeting to March? We're not moving that meeting, but having another meeting on March 26th and not having a meeting on the 12th. No. I guess my question is, do we need the meeting on the 26th? Right. right, yeah, sure. Yeah. 
But if we that's what I would ask. Yeah. Energize it if need if we need to energize that date based on the items, then I would be open to. But otherwise, uh, you know, I would leave it off the calendar unless we think we need it. Okay. Okay. Yes. Sorry. So no, just for just for point of for point of clarity. So if we were to come back and decide that we wanted to, is that is there like a threshold requirement that we must give the public? Well, that would be a special call where if you move it because you don't have a quorum, it's just a majority vote. But we just have to do it as a special call, but it can be done. Okay. It's real, really no notice. Okay. All right. Cool. Those are the parameters. That's good. Okay. I'll bring that back. All right. Thank you, madam. And Jay, German. I move to adjourn. All right. I'll second that. Okay. <laughs> First, the second, and third. Um, all those in favor of adjourning, please say aye. 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 All right. That's 5 zero. Everyone. Thank you. Good night. We are adjourned.